you know, it really began on on September 11th itself. Um, I saw the second plane hit the tower. Um, and you know, in, in moments like that, and, and I can't, and I hope I never have a moment like that again in my life, but it just caused me to just question everything. You are listening to The Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that crucible moment came from David Kale, the founder and CEO of Foley, who in today's episode unpacks his adolescence, explains the tipping point that spawned a new beginning and the transformation of his business mindset. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the real David Kale. Enjoy. Okay, we will get started here, David. Here we go. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is David Kale, the CEO of Foley. David, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Kevin. So, David, we spoke a little bit before on the phone. I'm excited to have you on because you are representing my hometown, Portland, Oregon, right now. And I was doing a little research, and we've had a few guests on the show, Ann Weaver with Elephant's Delicatessen. Uh, we had Stefan Aguilar with Green Hammer Design Build, and you all are in a two-mile radius. So I got to ask you, what's in the water right now in Portland, Oregon? You know, it's a special place. I think something's always been in the water in Portland. I, I moved to Portland about um, 15 years ago. Um, and felt that sort of intangible energy that it's got, that energy to sort of be yourself, listen to one another, respect one another. I immediately fell in love with it coming from New York. Um, felt that people were just super unassuming and open to new ideas, different ideas. And I think that openness, that vulnerability, that creativity um, blends into the culture here, not only into um, I think the progressive social nature of Portland, but also the businesses as well. And certainly in the case of Fully, uh, being in Portland has played a big role in the kind of company we are, uh, the kind of talent that we attract, and um, sort of this, this whole environment that we're in that encourages you to think outside the box. It, an environment indeed. I mean, unique, uh, Portland's a unique place. You know, it's it's centered, uh, you're an hour away from the mountain, you're an hour away from the beach, um, three hours away from the high desert, three hours away from Seattle. It's, it's a nice location and growing up there, uh, you're, you're really immersed in the environment. But David, you said you just came from New York. I mean, where were you before New York? What's your background story and what type of environment did you grow up in? Um, well, before New York, um, if, if we back up some, I, I actually am from Louisiana originally. I'm from New Orleans. I saw outside of New Orleans. Um, grew up in a relatively small town, sort of maybe 45 minutes from the city. Um, was was a kid who was um, sort of separated from his emotions a lot. I grew up in a family that was a little bit more formal. Um, more conservative. And I, I took to um, using other 
modalities to get myself out of my body and out of the moment a lot, like counting. I was an obsessive counter growing up. I was uh, someone who had a very vivid and, and creative imagination to take him away from places. But, um, you know, as, as I grew up and went to college, I um, sort of had a knack for numbers and I, I counted my steps a lot. Being a counter, um, I, I think, makes you comfortable with um, numbers, um, cognition, linear kinds of thinking. So I started accounting in school, um, got my CPA license and started working in public accounting. Uh, and then from public accounting, went to sort of corporate finance. Uh, and then I sort of weaved my way through a pretty successful financial career to Wall Street. Um, and I was working for a big Fortune 500 company, actually, uh, in the mergers and acquisitions area. Um, and thought I had a pretty amazing career by all aspects of what one would think a financial career should look like. Um, after the events of September 11th, um, that was a real wake up call for me to uh, assess who I was, what I was doing, why I was doing it. I don't think I had really taken a lot of time to, to do that because I was on this mission. I was on this path that was driven. And, and I thought that I was successful. Mm. Um, but I think that my idea of success and, and how I was feeling was just really warped from the reality of what what the human inside of me was really feeling and growing. And it wasn't really growing. It was something, unfortunately, that was uh, almost a compartmentalization of who I thought I should be and who I really was. So I took some time off after 9-11, got to uh, know myself a little bit better, uh, went on uh, meditation retreats, studied a lot about neurology and um, flow and Eastern religions and just did a lot of, I, I, I shut up a lot and listened to myself and noticed a lot more and um, realized that I was probably pretty depressed as I was um, in my late stages of my financial career and uh, didn't really have that many friends in my life and just wasn't connected to the world in a meaningful way. And I wanted to do something different and I wanted to take all of these gifts that I knew that I had deep down inside. Like I was still pretty good at numbers. I'm still pretty good at business um, and, and create a company that was about those things that respected all of who we are as people, not just the, the, the parts of us that are productive or the parts of us that, um, that we think would add value. All of us, we have all, all kinds of values inside of us. Um, that need to come out. And I think unless they're accessed in a way or invited to come out um, and we don't practice bringing them out, they just sort of stay down there. So I've always been a little bit entrepreneurial and creative and in, in the back of my head, didn't really recognize that until later in my life that it was, had always been there. And that was maybe the genesis of a lot of the, kind of the um, imagination that I had when I was younger, but um, creating a company like what we did at Foley um, was creating products based around this idea of a full self. The idea that when you show up physically, emotionally to your work, um, great things happen and your relationship to work is different. Um, we call it flow. We call it um, being able to access that part of your self and your spirit and your uh, that just knows 
not that part that does, but that part that has all the answers inside of us. So that manifests itself through the suite of products that we have. You know, yes, we sell standing desks. We sell funny looking chairs that um, make you pay a little bit of attention to balance while you're also in your flow. Um, mats that, uh, standing mats that have um, characteristics of nature underneath them. Uh, lighting that's more uh, appropriate for outside than inside. And things that help us be in positions that are natural. And when we get in those positions that are natural and we can relax into what we're doing, in my experience, um, we're a better force for ourselves. We're a better force for those around us. Um, and so started the company in, right after I moved to Portland from New York. Um, and gosh, that was 2006, Kevin. And over the, these past 14 years, have built a business um, that is not only about bringing about all of those things inside of us that are, that are gifts that we can recognize, but growing a culture in our company that recognizes the gifts in one another. Uh, we practice a lot of empathy. We practice a lot of mindfulness. Uh, we certainly love to be able to uh, lead with vulnerability and transparency in all that we do. Um, but at the, same, at the same time, recognizing that we have an opportunity and a responsibility to take care of all of the stakeholders around us as well, which um, you might know that we're a part of the B Corp movement, uh, believe really strongly in this idea that businesses have a responsibility to make the world better, not only individually as, as people do we have that responsibility, but even more so the kinds of power in these days that corporations have. We believe that we should take care of those stakeholders um, like they were part of our family and our communities, uh, Mother Earth, our employees. So um, being a leader in the B Corp movement as well is something that's, that's in our DNA. Um, and so fast forward to this day in 2020, we're now a business that's part of um, a bigger company. And we can talk about that, uh, that process if you want as well, because that's, that's another thing about raising capital. Um, realizing you need to raise capital in um, in these environments, um, you know it's it's difficult to grow at the kind of pace that we have as a company without having outside capital come in, and that is really hard as uh, a values driven, mission aligned organization. Making sure that that capital also aligns with our values was a whole other a whole other podcast that we can do about that uh, that that whole project of realizing you need money. How do we get the money? How do we kiss a lot of frogs to make sure we find the right prints? Um, and on the other side of that, come out better than we were before. And we, through that process, uh, found a great strategic partner called Knoll. They're a, a publicly traded company that's been in the furniture industry for a long time. Um, they're not a B Corp right now, um, but certainly values aligned. And so, um, in the summer of last year, we became part of Knoll, and our growth has continued really nicely uh, ever since. Um, certainly spurred lately by what's happening in the world with COVID-19 and the work from home shift that has occurred recently. Um, our business has always been a little bit of business B2B stuff. We do small workplaces for companies that are 100 employees or less, and we do a lot of work from home as well. So our business shifted to a whole bunch of work from home and very little in the business. Um, so that's been spurred a lot during this time. And 
uh, Noel has helped us a lot to scale and grow and do it in a way that is um, purposeful. Um, and so this year we find ourselves um, bigger than ever with more opportunities than ever, but also with more challenges than ever as we are in a world that is distributed and also in a world that is you know, recognizing that racism has, is part of the, the systems that we've created to, to protect and serve and um, educate our people. Um, so being a socially responsible business in these times when all of these other things are happening um, is challenging doing all the things, um, but that's the job of a CEO and um, I welcome it. Well, David, this is, I, I want to, I want to jump back to this really quick because you just went on about uh, kind of coming from Louisiana. You know, you were a shy, almost like a shy kid. You know, you're compartmentalized a lot of different things. You were trying to figure out what success was. This is what your career was. And then you reach this tipping point, a pressure point, a crucible after 9-11-2001. Now, what I'm curious about isn't the success of the company, the fundraising of the company. What I'm most curious about right now is those five years from 2001 to 2006 mm-hmm. when you had to figure out and search within yourself about what you wanted to do and how you went from this reserved person who was counting numbers uh, in New York City in the financial district is someone that moves to Portland, Oregon and is now leading a company of about around 100 people who gets acquired by a null. That's what I want to know, David. So in those five years, what was your pressure point? What was your tipping point? And what did you find within yourself that you, now you trusted that you can start this company and move to Portland, Oregon and, and grow it to a, a very successful organization? You're not going to ask the easy questions today, are you, Kevin? No, never. Um, when I look back on that period, you know, it really began on on September 11th itself. Um, I saw the second plane hit the tower. Um, and you know, in, in moments like that, and, and I can't, I hope I never have a moment like that again in my life, but it just caused me to, just question everything. Um, my sense of safety, my sense of um, the world around me. Um, and, I, and I think that kind of humongous event um, was the inception of me being able to open up and really notice all of these things that I was feeling inside. Um, as you mentioned, the uh, I was an expert at compartmentalizing my emotions, feeling something and then just pushing it back down because if it wasn't something that was going to serve me, it didn't serve me and wasn't going to serve the world or so I thought. And then on September 12th, um, you know, the day after um, in New York, there was no, the subways weren't running, the buses weren't running. uh, The city was sort of at a standstill. And and I, I, I walked to work and, and, Walking to work that day, I think, uh, on September the 12th was when things started to dislodge themselves inside of me. You know, normally when I walk to work, I would count the number of steps that I was taking in between blocks. Um, I I had this habit of counting how many times the don't walk sign would blink. And this morning was different. 
when I walked to work. I, um, I wasn't counting. I was feeling, I was being, um, and rather than avoiding eye contact with those that I passed on the street, I was, I was looking at people directly. Um, without fear. And, and, and maybe for the first time in my life on September the 12th, I was allowing people to look at me as I was walking along the street. And I felt it. I felt that connection. I shared something with all New Yorkers that day. It was, it was an awful thing that we shared, that we had in common. But I allowed people who I was passing on the street to look in my eyes and see me, my fear, my fragility. And I saw them in, in a way that they were allowing me to see. And, and in those 25 or so blocks of me walking to work, it changed my life. It gave me trust. It allowed me to, it invited me to get deeper into who I was and notice that I have things inside of me that are gray and that I don't understand and that are part of who I am. And by the time I actually got to work that morning, I was crying. Um, I was deeply touched by what I was feeling and I allowed myself to feel it for once. I allowed myself to be who I was, someone who didn't have all the answers, someone who wasn't strong and confident, someone who was scared, someone who didn't know what was going to happen next, someone who was profoundly sad about the events that had happened. And being with that and allowing myself to be with that was transformational. Um, I quit my job that day. I didn't know what I was going to do but I knew that I didn't want to be part of it. When I walked into my workplace and feeling the buttoned up nature of what that was, even on September the 12th, just smelling it, having those feelings come back to me about what it was like to be in the workplace where we did this and we maximized shareholder values. And this was the formula we were going to use to get better just didn't click for me anymore almost immediately. I didn't know what I wanted to do next, but I knew I didn't want to do that anymore. I couldn't go back. Right. So um, I moved uh, down to live with my parents in New Orleans. My dad um, later developed prostate cancer, and I sort of lived with, with him kind of taking care of uh, the family for a while. Um, and that was... Um, you know, necessity is sort of the mother of invention. Um, I knew I needed to have um, a job or some kind of money coming in. Um, and that was sort of the genesis of the company. But before I got there, um, I started to learn a lot about um, empathy. I read a lot of books. Um, I had some great teachers. Um, Gil Fronstahl um, is a meditation teacher in the Bay Area. Um, I got hooked up with Larry Yang and Jack Cornfield um, and was able to take, you know, when you don't have a job anymore, you have a lot of freedom. And luckily, I was so uh, fortunate to have some money saved up so that I could do this exploration, this internal exploration for me. But it was, uh, I went on a 30 day silent meditation retreat, which is really freaking scary. 
um, and just being with myself and my thoughts for 30 days uh, without making eye contact with others uh, was sort of, I'd say, I'd say the second big transformational experience for me to get more comfortable about being in my own body, respecting and loving the person that I am. And I didn't have a lot of respect and love for the person that I was. Um, I didn't think others really cared about me. I, you know, growing up in the deep South and, and being gay, um, times were a lot different in the seventies and eighties uh, than they are today. So I didn't practice a lot of self-love. I didn't think I had a reason to, um, but coming out of that 30 day silent meditation retreat, um, reassessing what I wanted to do to make an impact in the world, um, started the next process, which was, I, I kind of skipped forward to that a little while ago, but going, and being with my dad over his last few years and, and realizing the fragility of life and the fact that we we're all going to die and we can make a choice of um, moving toward death every day or really trying to make a difference in each of those precious days we have left in our lives. And, you know, I was holding my dad's hand in this last few breaths and, and knowing that that's going to be me. That's going to be me someday. And, I, and when I'm taking my last few breaths, I want to know that I've done something that makes this world that we're in a little bit better, makes, helps us to love one another a little bit better, better um, invites more empathy, transparency, leaning into who we are as people and connecting with one another. And I hadn't been doing that for the first quarter century or 30 years of my life. Um, but I had a lot of my life left to do. And so from that point on, um, I made a list of the places that I thought I might want to live. Um, chose Portland. Like any good accountant, I made a nice spreadsheet of, I think I might like this place. And I, I did the pluses and the minuses of all of those places. And I arrived to Portland and uh, I just realized right when I got off the plane, Kevin, this place feels right. There's something about this place. Now, given it was also August. Breathe that fresh air too, huh? <laughs> if you've ever been in Portland in August, it's pretty close to paradise. Um, it's not too hot. It's not too humid. Um, you're pretty much guaranteed for sunshine. Um, but more importantly than the beautiful weather, and as you mentioned, the, the, the geographic bounty that Northwest Oregon is, it was about the people too. I felt just a real ease of interacting with people. Um, they felt really genuine. Uh, so that, as I had mentioned before, has been a really great um, ingredient, I would say, in the success of, of where I've where my life has, has has ended up, but certainly in our company of fully as well. So that period between 2001 and 2005 was just a whole lot of self-discovery, um, I think a, a, a lot of acceptance of all of who I am and not trying to be something that I'm not. Mm. And, and inviting that in was just such a turning point for me, inviting in the fact that I have deep emotions. I'm, a, I'm an emotional person. We're all emotional people. I think to some level or, or, or higher level or lower level, do we allow those emotions to 
impact our experience on a moment to moment basis. And knowing that my experience is about the physical sensations that are happening um, and my emotions. And, and that sort of helped me move forward, I think, with a more holistic view and, and recognizing in the workplace that we were building that everybody else has those emotions too. And, and recognizing that we all are coming from a different place and, and practicing a lot of empathy around each of our individual experiences, I think has helped us all be more connected to one another. Um, and leading with that um, emotional awareness is, 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 I think, really important for leaders, especially in the kinds of times that we find ourselves in. And these times will go, uh, you know, those waves, I think, of when we need to practice a lot of emotional intelligence. Um, this is one of those times when having the skills and the experience to do that uh, really pays off um, as a CEO and leader. See, here's my thing, David, and thanks for sharing that. I mean, it's incredible. and it, You just don't hear the real stories sometimes about how people came to where they are and how, where they've landed right now and how they view the world and, and their perspective on, on leadership. Um, I, I, don't, I really don't think leadership can be taught. I think it's something that you yourself have to self-discover. And it seems like, um, you know, a key for your, those five years was that self-discovery into uh, like, uh, I'll throw in a, a Bruce Lee here, a martial artist, you know, to honestly express yourself. It's, it's really easy to put on a show and show you all these moves and, and be cocky and, and have this stigma about you that you're this confident leader. But to honestly express yourself, to listen to your mind and to shut off everything that's um, external um, is very difficult to do and very difficult to find. Now, through these five years, David, um, what have been some of the um, traits, some of the practices through, uh, from meditation, from your uh, uh, introspective uh, uh, listening to yourself and your mind, the silent meditations, what traits and, and practices have uh, been able to manifest in the Foley culture? Yeah. Um, you know, for me, Kevin, I think the work always begins at home. Um, so not only the, the, the daily meditation practice, but the empathy practice, the loving kindness practice, those kinds of things that I do, those practices to allow me to be vulnerable as a leader are important. And I think that as we talk about the culture in fully, um, CEOs and senior management really do dictate what the rest of the culture is all about. Um, we are animals. We watch one another and we watch our leaders and we oftentimes um, emulate their behavior. They set the examples. So the most important thing that I can do is show vulnerability, show transparency all the time. Uh, and, you know, it's not easy. Um, it, that's why I, th I think it's a practice of, and I can feel it in my body when I'm, when I'm wanting to not give someone like all the facts, or I'm wanting to maybe, um, appear more confident than I am. And, and that mindfulness practice helps me notice that, oh my, I'm feeling that thing again in my body, take a deep breath and go back to that place where I can be the leader that my company needs me to be. And for our company, the kind of leadership that works is openness, transparency, vulnerability, um, collaboration 
a lot of listening to one another. I'm not uh, that kind of CEO that is a command and control kind of person um, because I think it's it's really important in our culture to realize when we're in meetings or when we're um, in, in a group, one of the big gifts we have is that we have a big diversity of perspectives. We have a big diversity of life experiences. Um, hiring with that lens is really important, which is um, part of this practice as well. But being able to be in a room with a lot of people that have a lot to add, giving them the invitation and the safety to say things that may or may not uh, resonate with others, but giving we're, we're going to be able to find out some great things as a company when people feel the refuge of being together and that they can speak their mind, disagree with respect and compassion. Um, and there's no, if, if we're in a room of people, there's nobody in that room smarter than all of us together. And so being able to open up that dialogue and encourage us all to be a higher being together than we are individually is I think at the root of how we can move forward better and faster. It, it seems to be uh, something that has been like a Trojan horse for a lot of these B Corps, the, the work culture, uh, the transparency, the employee engagement that comes from that. Um, now, a lot of successful companies, you can look this up, anyone listening to this can look this up, uh, have come from times of uncertainty, have come from the Great Depression, have come from scares, from sicknesses. Uh, you yourself, uh, you mentioned 9-11, the awakening. Um we recently just happened, you know, in March 2020, if you're listening to this on audio in 2021, uh, March 2020, COVID-19 scares uh, the United States. Essential products um, and services are on a list. Uh, people are asked to work at home. What happened to your organization um, and what are some of the key takeaways right now from this? And what are some of the things that you're going to bring forward with you um, in the future? It, it seems, it seems like a long time ago now, Kevin, when this it really does, but it was for listeners today is June the 12th. So it's been roughly three months now that we all went home, if you will. Um, this distributed workforce for us has been a really big challenge, um, partly because um, our business also really shifted a lot during this time. So those times of needing to collaborate and work through solutions um, has never been greater. We're trying to scale our business. We scaled our, we doubled our business over two years. We were able to scale it from say 2000 and 18 to 2020 with a great plan and we scaled it and we doubled it. And we're trying to now scale and double our business in three months, working distributed. Um, and by the way, we we're unfortunately moving warehouses at the time as well, which, which adds just another fun element to this. Um, sure. But, but I think falling back on our core values in these times when the winds in our face like this is how we have been, able to navigate it well. And I would even argue that um, we've been even more productive and more efficient in this distributed environment than, than we have been in the past. Um, I think part of that is due to the fact that people are able to uh, 
No, it's not easy in the beginning. I think anytime we transition to new ways of working, it's, it's difficult. New ways of anything, there's a transition uh, moment that takes a little bit of a hump to get over. But I think people settled into a, a new way of working that is asynchronous, that we weren't really used to, but it helps us all um, contribute those things that we need to contribute to our progress without having to be in a meeting room at the same time or in um, the office between 8.30 and 5. Um, we have kids, we have uh, parents and grandparents. We have a lot of other stresses in this time now. So I think falling back on our core values of empowering us individually to, do, to take care of ourselves first. And when we can take care of ourselves, we can be a better force for taking care of those around us. Um, and empowering people to just say, hey, you know, if you need to do, um, if you're unable to work 40 hours or 20 hours, take care of yourself, do what you need to do. And then I think people have that strong connection to a culture like ours and, and feel responsible and want to be part of the solution as well. And they find a way to get their work done to get us to where we are. So, you know, on the other side of this, um, we here in Portland are just getting into the phase one return. Um, I think it will forever change how we work uh, as a company. I, th I think there's, I think some of us have realized that we don't need to necessarily be in the office. And if we can find a better way to, to be at home and, and we feel safer here, closer to our family, closer to those things that really define us as people, um, that's just fine. So we're going to continue to have an open mind and a curiosity on the other side of this. But my sense is that it's going to, people are going to move into different ways of working individually and on teams um, that best suit themselves rather than best suit what we think the needs of our company have been, which have been, hey, you come to work and we can collaborate together in person. But we're realizing we don't have to do that. Mm. So I, I think that we're still really open and curious as to what it's going to look like on the other side, but um, all options are on the table. Uh, is seeing yeah, we hear this time and time again. You know, seeing, you, you mentioned the the wind sail example and following you know, like a moral compass, a north star. Uh, you know, these values have been able to stabilize stabilize that turbulence, uh, if you will. Now, you also mentioned earlier in the show. Um, it's, it's setting the example us as managers, um, can, uh, exemplify things that we want our employees to, um, follow and adapt. Now, when working distributed and growing as a company, um, do you feel that you can still do this in a way that's remotely? And what are some of the challenges with, uh, uh, making sure everyone's on the same page, um, as you continue to grow and grow and grow? Whew, we're still figuring all that stuff out, Kevin. Um, but but I'll tell you what's working for us yeah. is um, I think when we're all apart, um, it certainly makes it a lot more difficult to collaborate, to um, communicate in general. So our, our senior leadership team has a, a daily call where we get together now and we uh, you know, talk through what's happening, what we're hearing, and how we can best keep all of our employees informed about how things are going. Um, but more equally importantly, I would say is how do we maintain the social culture of our company while we're far away? Because one of our biggest assets as as a company is the unique 
And I, th- I think really strong culture that we have of taking care of one another, being there for one another and feeling um, that we're better together. So some of the things we've done is we, we created, you know, <laughs> if I don't see another Zoom room on the other side of this uh, pandemic, it will be just fine with me. But we created a, a virtual water cooler for people to have those connections to just kind of bounce in whenever they want every once in a while. And some people actually tend to leave their virtual that, that virtual water cooler room open a lot. And it's a way for them to still stay connected in other human ways with their coworkers. Um, so there's both the leadership strategic side of things, staying connected on that level, but equally importantly, I think having people feel that they're still part of a team that is together, but also struggling in our own individual ways has been important. Um, and I would also say that you know, in the terms of the teamworks that are happening too, um, there are opportunities for us to get together in parks occasionally, um, just sort of like, for example, on our product development team, seeing and touching and feeling products is important. So being able to do things differently, try things that we wouldn't normally do. I mean, I would never thought that we'd be reviewing our new chair um, in Selwood Park, but th- these are kind of what the, these are sort of the things that, that we have to do in these kinds of times. Um, and I think also just communicating a lot with the team, um, having uh, monthly all hands meetings where people can hear from me, hear from our president, Craig Thomas, um, and have the opportunity to just share and ask questions um, and feel connected to senior leadership as well during those times, I think is important. Now, David, I read a study um, before COVID that uh, certified B corporations were more likely to have high growth during a recession or times of uncertainty. Now, you were you mentioned earlier on the show you were acquired by Knoll. Um, I'm just curious, why did they feel comfortable with acquiring a certified B corporation? Have they uh, felt and, and been able to work with you all um, to expand your own principles? Um, how does this work? And what are a few things that you are doing uh, to help out uh, uh, Noel as a subsidiary? Well, uh, Noel is, for those folks who don't know about Noel, it's K-N-O-L-L. Um, they're based in East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Uh, and they're a company that's one point something billion dollars in revenue. And, and we're this little $50 million Portland company um, with their own sort of unique progressive culture. Um, and they're a company that's been around for 80 or 90 years. So um, I think in the strategic way, they saw us uh, as a great um, complement to their core business of office furniture sold through dealers to architects and designers um, on big projects. And ours is online e-commerce direct um, small companies and work from home employees. So from uh, a strategic fit, it worked really nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the B Corp values and our culture or something that's really, uh, I think, calling yourself a B Corp or calling yourself a purpose-driven company is something that's sort of new to Noel. So that has been a great process for us. Um, Andrew Kogan, their CEO, is is phenomenal, um, heart-driven leader who I think has always thought in these terms, but um, wasn't really as familiar with the B Corp movement and with uh, using business as a force of good as part of our Articles of Incorporation and DNA. Uh, not only are we a certified B Corp, we're an Oregon 
uh, benefit corporation as well. So it's been an amazing uh, and fun journey for us, Kevin. You know, we had a lot of options on how to move forward with the capital raise. We could have gone with a values aligned uh, family office. We could have gone with um, an impact private equity group. But I feel like being part of a big furniture company that's one of the big four in terms of the office furniture industry was a way for us to infiltrate our B Corp values in a way that I think could be much more impactful. So the journey since the acquisition has been really fantastic. We recognize that our cultures are really different um, and we're learning a lot from one another. And and I think that we've been able to, we've been able to, for for example, leverage off of a lot of the scale they have um, in purchasing and in human resources and things like that. But we've also been able to infiltrate their culture as it relates to things like, um, uh, volunteer hours. You know, we, we, we give our employees two full weeks to volunteer wherever they want uh, in, in the community. Um, our packaging um, is completely recyclable. Our, um, the, the things we do within our community as well uh, as a B Corp are, are part of who we are. And so we've, we're already seeing a lot of um, uh, our our values and our actions being t- not only being taken note of at the parent company level, but they're starting to implement a lot of those as well. And this was exactly the kind of thing I was hoping was going to happen with this transaction is they're able to see that, Hey, this company is profitable and they're built on purpose. So those two things aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, I would argue that they feed each other. It's not a balance of profit and purpose. Um, those things when they're healthy, together can just feed off of one another and create a company that has a lot more impact and is, a, is, is something that is guaranteed to be sustainable. I think Patagonia is another great example of those kinds of companies. So um, it's certainly been um, an acknowledgement and an awareness that we're very different, but also an appreciation of all of those things that make us stronger and we are already seeing some really great um, initiatives from our parent company in this area. And, and and what's even greater is they call me a lot when there's a lot of big decisions to be happened that that, that are going to happen and to get my point of view on this. And uh, so, so we have a seat at the table and that's all we could ask for. And um, not only do we have that seat at the table, but they really listen to us. And, and I think that we're starting to affect not only this company in a more positive way, but the furniture uh, industry in general, which hasn't historically been um, the best corporate citizen out there. Right, right. And and just to kind of bring this full circle, uh, we started with kind of the environment. And I think, you know, the whole intention of Foley as well is uh, creating an environment that one can thrive in, putting the humanity back in the business. And as you grow, as you profit more, it's able to have a larger impact on the work environment, on the employee satisfaction, the work culture that we've talked and dove so deep into today. Um now, I am curious now, I know we have eight minutes left, uh, David, and I don't want to, I want to uh, respect your time and we can maybe dive into this a different day, but I want to touch on one thing that we did with say we were going to touch on today. Um, and that is um, these stipends, uh, the the idea um, uh, that Foley was able to roll out in a time where workers and, and home and work furniture 
uh, is not being sold to companies because their employees are now working at home. Maybe explain to our audience um, for this specific uh, example how a, a corporation, or a company like yours, a certified B corporation like yours, was able to step in uh, and deliver um, products to customers in a time of need. Um, I think this is a really unique result of our relationship with Noel. You know, Noel has um, a lot of Fortune 500 clients. You know, our client base historically, Kevin, has been um, that small accounting firm in Seattle or um, a digital design agency in Philadelphia. Um, Noel's big clients are Bank of America and Disney and Google and huge companies. Um, so when their workplace business really started to get affected by COVID-19, they, they realized that um, you know, what, what's happening is that employees are still working. They're just not in the workplace anymore. And they need to be as geared up and outfitted to be able to bring their best work to their employer as possible, but from home. So Noel, with all of their contacts with those big companies and us with our contacts here in our community and others um, went to those companies to say, hey, we can help you outfit your home office employees. Not only can we give you a unique um, discount code so that your employees can log in and get discounts on fully.com, but we could also manage stipend programs for you so that you can take away all of the paperwork and each one of those employees having to do a an expense report and submit it for approval and they get approved and they get a check cut to the employee. So taking off all of that administrative burden by creating um, an application that an employer was able to give their employees unique discount codes that would automatically create stipends for them. So when they logged in and added things to their cart, maybe they were going to get a height adjustable desk or a better chair for their uh, for their old desk that they had from that they inherited from their grandfather, but they would be able to add things to their cart and check out. And then the employer would give them a stipend up to a certain amount. And then we would just build that employer at the end of the month. Uh, so taking away all of those administrative costs, the employee gets to get um, whatever they want without having to do an expense report. And if they wanted to kind of splurge and go with uh, uh, more things for their office, like better lighting or to get an extra chair for their partner, they could do that and just use that discount with their own credit card as well. So we created an application that sort of did all of the that paperwork um, internally so that the employer and the employee didn't have to do it. I took a really long time explaining that. It's, it's actually a relatively simple really thing. Simple. To do, yeah. But it's, it's, um, it, it's somewhat complicated to do all the coding to do that uh, in our shopping carts. No doubt. No doubt. Well, David, uh, being adaptive has been a trait that has been very apparent throughout this entire episode. And when you work with nature, when you work and, and have some introspection, you, you were able to um, move around the obstacles, go through the obstacles and understand that's truly the way to profitability, to growth, to success, to happiness. So to bring this full circle, to to wrap this up, David, um, we, we've been talking about leadership this entire time. David, to you, what is your definition of a real leader? I think my definition, based on hearing myself talk this entire uh, 40 minutes or however long we've been talking here, Kevin, is um, to be vulnerable and to be curious. Um, I think 
our culture, um, specifically in this country, has uh, given a lot of um, props to bold, confident leadership. And I think there's a place for that. But I think knowing that we don't have all of the answers is really important. Um, and communicating that we don't have all of the answers is really important. David, thank you so much uh, for coming on this episode of the Reelers podcast from the hometown of Portland, Oregon. And as they say in Portland, Oregon, we like to keep it weird. And for David Kale, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, be vulnerable, be curious, keep it weird. And always, folks, keep it real. David, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Kevin. All right, good people. And thank you for tuning into this episode today of the Reelers Podcast with David Kale. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if there's one thing we ask you to do today is if you want to take the next step to becoming a Reeleader, go online to real-layers.com slash subscribe and get the stories that aren't on this podcast. Get the messages, the blueprints, the tactics to becoming the ultimate real leader. All you got to do is, again, is go online to real-leaders.com slash subscribe, enter in coupon code podcast25, and you will get your first magazine for free with a one-year subscription. For all the visual learners out there, we are continuing to put these interviews up onto our YouTube channel, this interview as well. All you got to do is go online to YouTube, type in Real Leaders Magazine, hit the subscribe button, to get notified of all of these releases with Reelers like David Kale. That's it for me. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Reelers Podcast. And always, folks, keep it real.